And we're live. Uh, welcome back. How's it, how's it going? You know, I'm okay. I'm trying to stay even. It would be easy to go dark, even though, obviously, things aren't as bad as they could have been. There's still so much to go dark about. I'm trying not to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, the world's kind of going dark. Uh, it's, yeah, it's hard. Today was one of those, like, days uh, where I, like, woke up and sneezed and uh, almost immediately and pulled a muscle in my neck. <laughs> And then later, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I was grating, I was grating cheese on spaghetti and uh, grated my knuckle off, and that hurt really bad. So I've been having a rough day, uh, just physically. That's probably not what you were talking about. No, but I want to know how you're doing, and uh, I'm sorry that you had those bad things happen to you. Like I don't leave my house anymore, so like I'm just sort of stuck in this area, and so I guess. Maybe like all of my attention is focused on the here and now. You might as well focus on the here and now. I've gotten to a point where I, I, I think like all the time that I spend thinking about politics and about what's going on at the highest levels of government is 99% just wasted time. I might as well just be watching commercials. You yeah. know, there's just no, there's nothing that I can really do about it. Why do I spend every ounce of mental energy I I have just focused on this one thing? It doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Except for the fact that it's a massive thing that has con consequences for many, many millions of people and me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there's that. But I think also, like you, if anything, Trump is like the television president, right? And uh, politics kind of or at least a certain kind of politics unfolds on television. Uh, and everybody on television is always freaking out, no matter what, you know, sort of uh, side that they're on. They're always just in a complete state of like panic and anxiety and anger and like all of these really strong emotions. And it's like, it, it's magnetic to sometimes it's magnetic to like to watch that. Other times it's just repulsive. Yeah. Well, it's all of those. Things. It makes it almost hard to experience fiction in any way that's even remotely satisfying because yeah. all yeah. of your emotions are getting fucked with so significantly. I mean, all the horrible things are true. The anxiety, everything that you were just describing is true. But it's like the funny moments are also way funnier than anything that you could possibly write. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. Like everything yeah. this last week. With, like Rudy Giuliani's uh, hair dye sweating down his face. Like that, like exactly like a week after total landscaping yeah in the moment that total landscaping actually happened and you were like holy shit yeah this is happening it's, and Giuliani objectively is up funny. there like there's standing next to a convicted pedophile <laughs> <between> <laughs> next to a porn shop yeah. it's like and the, this the is woman amazing. who is uh who's been with him lately the uh who is michael flynn's personal lawyer uh who is like this rabbit oh was that the woman in the in the press conference yeah and this like QAnon she, lady uh she was a disaster yeah uh she's completely nuts uh somehow saying that hugo chavez uh undermined the u.s election from beyond the grave uh I, like, right it's yeah that's very a confusing it does it like i don't yeah i mean it, uh, it it's entertaining and funny um it just sucks that it actually has real concrete consequences in the world and and leads to, you know, uh, suffering and uh, despair.
Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm Chad. Uh, And I'm Joe. And it's great that you're here with us again or for the first time. Thanks for showing up. Yeah, that was very sweet. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's been, yeah, it's been six weeks since we last put out an episode. It's partly due to the fact that we're busy as usual and partly due to the fact that, like, I don't know how people get a lot of work done in this moment of history. There was kind of a lot happening the last six weeks. I don't know if you were paying attention. I was. Yeah, a lot has happened since our last update. Uh, uh, We had an election. From what I understand, there's no clear result yet. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, Trump is obviously going to win. I mean, clearly. You know, I think he's got an ace up his sleeve. I think he could pull this one out. Uh, (laughs) I'll I'll just just say this. You know what I wish there was so badly right now? Uh, What? I I wish there was some kind of online betting platform where they would take bets on whether or not Trump would be president on January 21st. I think there are. Be- I think you could do that. Do you, I would pay, uh, where? Is it legal? Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did it um, back in the primaries. I remember checking this out. No, but I mean, the, it's already happened. Yeah, yeah. The I election think, has happened. Uh, I think you could. Probably, I think you could still do it. I mean, you can bet on anything. But the thing is, there's like tens of millions of people that really believe that Trump is going to be <laughs> president. Know, oh, yeah, that's a great I, idea. I, I, I want like to bet odds. those people money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll give those people favorable odds. Uh, so I think that the bookmakers set the odds, and so right. But I'm saying they'll set the odds accordingly. I mean, according obviously, to, not, I don't think that they set them according to people's belief. I think they they set them according to the calculations that are made by professionals, right? So like- Right, we're saying the same thing. The bet makers, the odds makers are going to say that it's much more likely that Biden is president than Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the reality. But I'm saying even given those steep odds, I would happily make a rather large wager (laughs) (laughs) that Biden will be president on January 21st, 2021. And I think there's people out there who would take me up on it. I just need uh, a, a facilitator. Yeah, I think they have those. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but if you if you know what this is, if you know how to do this, and it's legal, please contact the show. And it's let me definitely know. legal. I did it. I I put like five dollars on Bernie or something back. But uh, this, you're not talking about what I'm talking about. That's before an election has taken place. Yeah, yeah, no. This I, is a, but I think you can, I mean, you can bet on anything. That's what I'm trying to say is like there were, it wasn't just the primaries that you could bet on. You could bet on like literally any, any event. I bet, I, I would bet you, I'll wager you that there exists uh, a wager that you could place on will Trump be uh, inaugurated. Okay. Uh, I bet you that you can't find that platform for me within 90 seconds on the internet. <laughs> no, I don't I don't want to take that bet. <laughs> well, I don't want to take your bet. <laughs> Let's do the news. Billionaires in the news. 
All right. Uh, first story is a story that it probably sounds like you've heard this story before, which is that U.S. billionaires gained almost a trillion dollars in wealth during the pandemic. There have been a bunch of I think of we've these. actually talked about this. No, we didn't. Previously. This is a news story that just came out. Um, right. But I mean, it wasn't a trillion dollars then, but we talked several right. episodes about how they were <laughs> the coronavirus was making rich people richer. Yeah. Yeah. And it just keeps getting the numbers just keep getting bigger. Um, and so, like, you know, now every month they just come out with uh, uh, a new story about how billionaires are doing really great during the pandemic and it's good for them. So they've gained a, a trillion dollars in total net worth, uh, according to a new analysis. Uh, this is an article from uh, CBS News. Uh, and quote, the spike in wealth coincides with what some economists are calling a K-shaped recovery, uh, with the, the rich regaining their footing while the poorer Americans struggle with lost wages and jobs. So like, I guess the K-shape is like one side of the K is going up. As billionaires make money, and the other side of the K, you know, points down where everyone. That's else not is. a recovery. It's not, That's it's just not a K a, shape. It's, yeah, it's not a recovery at all. It's actually the opposite of a recovery. Um, but the numbers are really insane. Uh, so a trillion dollars sounds like a lot. It, well, it is a lot. Um, but like the total wealth of the 644 American billionaires is 3.88 trillion and they gained nearly another trillion dollars. So it was 2.88 trillion and now it's 3.88 trillion. So is there any general theory of why this is happening? Um, I don't know. Uh, I didn't dig into it enough to find out the, the, the explanation why maybe that's something we can cover on the next show. That should be a whole show. I mean, this is like, I mean, the answer is clearly Disaster capitalism stuff, but that would that'd be a great special topic show. Yeah. Um let's let's um remind ourselves to do that. But uh uh the total amount of uh wealth that six hundred and forty four people own uh is twice uh the wealth that is held by the bottom half of the US population or about hundred and sixty five million people. The thing that the biggest thing to worry about with this is that we're still in the period of coronavirus where like, even though no relief has been uh, forthcoming recently, there is some expectation that it will be uh, and that uh, businesses are still hanging on with the expectation of reopening. Like some many have closed, but like what is going to happen, right? Like in the ensuing couple of years after these like these struggling businesses uh, struggle more to reopen and to reestablish themselves. I mean, a couple of things are going to happen. A lot are going going to fail. Um, a lot of others are going to be bought up by huge private equity firms that are just going to like hoover them up. And I mean, we're we're very quickly heading toward a place where there's going to be like ten large corporations that run America, right? Like, it seems like most of the forecasting is that small businesses. Uh, small and medium-sized businesses are in huge trouble uh, in, over the next few years. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, next story. I know I promised I would not talk about Elon Musk tweets on this podcast Wait, anymore. You're doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I am doing this. What listeners are witnessing right now is tension in Chad and I's professional relationship. <laughs> I'm so sick of Elon Musk's tweets. I mean, we've already, how many times have I said that on air? Well, you, okay. I mean, you have, but 
it's not this story's not just about tweets. It's also uh, about a big event. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, there are two parts to the story. The first one is uh, he did a big spaceship launch with his SpaceX. Uh, and there were people inside the rocket. And so I guess that was a big milestone. And that made his stock go really high. And he surpassed Mark Zuckerberg on the wealthiest people list. Uh, he is now number three. That's uh, kind of interesting. I guess I didn't know that. I'm sort of yeah. backpedaling now. Huh. <laughs> well, at the same time that he was trending on Twitter for uh, this uh, space uh, launch uh, he was also trending in a completely different context under the hashtag uh, hashtag space Karen because he he posted this quote something extremely bogus is going on was tested for COVID four times today two tests came back negative two came back positive same machine same test same nurse rapid antigen test from BD so. I was I was like, uh, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I feel like I heard about antigen tests and I heard that they did give a lot of false negatives, right? Like the idea with the rapid test is that you can take a bunch of them really quickly. And if you have it and they identify it, the positives are reliable, but the negatives are not necessarily reliable. And if you Google antigen test false negative rate, the very first result is Quote, this is in like one of those big COVID info boxes that Google does uh, with a big red label. Uh, <laughs> the reported rate of false negative results is as high as 50%, which he took four tests and two of them were negative, which is why antigen <laughs> tests are not favored by the FDA for a single test uh, for active infection. So he had COVID. He got two positive tests and had COVID. Uh, but, but he's like, I also got two negative, didn't bother to Google if negative tests were common with the kind of tests he had. And a million people pointed this out right away. Uh, and then someone called him a space Karen and everybody thought that was very funny. And, and so it was, uh, why would you uh, post to Twitter before Googling some shit? Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. It makes you wonder, <laughs> you know, like learning this kind of stuff about him and uh, like his weird submarine uh, Thai cave boy fantasy and like all of this shit. <laughs> like, I mean, how long is it going to be before one of these spaceships? Like he's going to do something stupid. Like I'm sure he's not designing the spaceships, right? Like, uh, like there are other people designing at, at some point he's going to interfere in a way that's going to lead to uh, astronauts exploding. I, I, I would, th if you want to talk about betting, I will bet on that. Uh, I will bet that that's a dark prediction. Jim. I will bet that Elon Musk is responsible for some astronaut deaths before this whole SpaceX thing is over. Uh, speaking of death, this is a good transition into our third and final story. Um, a billionaire has died and we we haven't really been covering when billionaires die. And, and that was, that's been a major oversight on our on our part. And I want to sort of integrate this into the news section that. Uh, when somebody falls off of our list because of death, uh, we should we should talk about. That. Well, obituaries are in the news. We've mentioned some deaths before. But... Obituaries are news. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the person who died is uh, Sheldon Solo. Uh, he died. Uh, Never heard about, of him. About three days ago. He was ninety-two. He he lived a, a rich uh, life. He was um he was one of these. He's a New New York real estate billionaire, and he was one of these guys who. Uh, very much like Trump and 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 other ones, it was just known for suing people all the time. Like he would sue people for doing things that weren't crimes, but just upset him. <laughs> you know, like so he sued 
the Avon Corporation, the, the makeup corporation, uh, I guess they were renting one of his buildings and he sued them uh, because they called their building the Avon building instead of uh, what he wanted them to call it, which was uh, maybe the solo bill. I don't know what he wanted them to call it, but he sued them over it. He sued General Motors because they didn't consider him as a potential buyer for a building that they owned. Like he felt left out. So he was a litigious jerk. Yeah, he yeah that is so he was that, but that's not really what he was most famous for. He was most famous for having a so-called art museum uh, that no one could visit. He had a massive, massive art collection. Uh, recent tax filings put the value at over $215 million, uh, but it's certainly worth more than that. He has a Botticelli alone that is worth $80 million. Uh, he has uh, Matisse's, Van Gogh's, he has all of them. And every single one of them uh, are tax exempt because he listed his private collection as a public museum even though it was never open to the public. Oh, <laughs> he was the chair and sole board member of the Solo Foundation, a <laughs> fake 501c3. Uh, so he would buy a painting from a dealer and then donate it to his own foundation, making it exempt from taxation when he decided to sell it. So the Botticelli I mentioned a minute ago, he bought it for $1.3 million in the 80s. It's now worth over $80 million. So when his family sells it, that sale is going to be tax exempt. And his family is going to save, they estimate, $33 million in capital gains taxes on the sale of the painting. So like... Is there any way of proving that it wasn't a real museum so that they get popped? There's a, there's a, a, a guy who maintains a website. I think it's called sologallery.com. We'll post a link to it in the, in the show notes because it's very funny. And uh, and it, it sort of details the stuff, but like it has hours of operation and it's like Monday, closed, Tuesday, not open, <laughs> Wednesday, not here. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's just sort of like um, it's this, you know, very funny uh, website that this guy's had up for years. And uh, so <laughs> the, you know, so like that, it's so crazy, right? Like the family is going to get that $80 million, right? And then they're going to save $33 million that they would have otherwise had to pay, which makes the painting worth like over a hundred million dollars, right? Because they don't have to, like, they don't have to pay the taxes on, they, they're relieved from that tax burden, it. right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's money that's used for you know, that could be used for healthcare and schools and things that like people need. But uh, instead, he cheated people out of it. And uh, the family now that he's dead because they're under scrutiny is going to open up the collection to the public uh, because they're not going to be able to retain their 501c3 tax exempt status if they don't oh, do so that. They are they are getting pressured into. I believe so. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. And also, apparently, that move, I don't know the financial instrument exactly that will lead to this, but it will also save them millions in inheritance taxes, because I guess they're not inheriting the paintings. Uh, the paintings stay part of the foundation as long as it keeps its 501c3 status. So All of these rules are very smart and very fair, and I feel lucky <laughs> to, to be a part of this world. So horrible.
right, Chad. So you've got somebody for us today. I, as usual, don't remember who this person is. What? Who, who are you dealing with? Uh, it is Safra Katz. Um, Safra Katz? Katz with a know. C. Uh, huh. She is the co-CEO of Oracle Corporation. Ah, um, yes. The name that the name that most people obviously associate with Oracle is Larry Ellison. Uh, Ellison is the founder of Oracle and ran it until he retired uh, and handed the CEO ship over to Safra Katz and another guy um, named David Hurd. Uh, David Hurd is also uh, not a great person. Uh, in fact, a very bad person uh, who got fired from HP, Hewlett Packard, for sexual harassment. And then David within, Hurd? Yeah, within a week, he was hired to be the co-CEO for Oracle. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm Do you sure know who David Bird is? David Bird. No. Mm-mm. Little Dicky. Thanks for the interjection. <laughs> <laughs> Ellison uh, is also on our list. He's like <laughs> number five or six, maybe down to like number eight at this point. So I don't want to talk about him too much. We'll talk about he'll obviously come up uh, on the random selector someday. But I want to say a couple things about him and Oracle because it kind of sets up a discussion of Safra Cats. Um, okay. so jo- Joe, do you have any idea what Oracle does? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I've heard of Oracle. Almost nobody. Yes, that is what, that's like what everybody, that's everyone's situation. I know Oracle exists and I know it's a big company and I've seen the like logo, but I'm not sure. I still don't know what it, I researched it for like a week and I'm still not really sure. I assume it has something to do with technology. Yes. Well, yeah, (laughs) it's definitely technology. In a, so in a nutshell, they make enterprise software and database products. I know that doesn't like really make it any clearer um that makes no sense to me either yeah so enterprise software is special software that businesses need so like a big company needs uh some specific software that performs a specific task unique to their i do actually know what enterprise software in a general way i know that it's like institutional level so that's that's one of the things that they do um and the other thing that they do is database products, which I'm going to talk. That's what they're really famous for. Uh, um, like in kick-ass databases, just awesome databases. Uh, well, that's not clear. You know, <laughs> they're one of the top competitors, but um, but their 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 database background brings us to the very interesting story of how Oracle got its name, why it, why it came to be called Oracle in the 1970s. Uh, IBM developed something called a relational database. And we're all very familiar with these today, but uh, don't call them that. A relational database is a type of database that stores and provides access to data points that are related to one another. So what that means uh, in practical terms is that you have like a giant database and you need to organize that information in some way that it becomes useful to you, right? And so relational databases create these tables to organize information and uh, they allow you to query the database uh, in such a way that you can relate pieces of data together. 
So let's say that honestly didn't help me that much, but that's well, okay. okay. I'm, I'm gonna not give that you, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna it give you. It sounds really boring. No, it's not. It's not boring. It, it, it's very interesting because it, it it's it's important to uh, uh, the story that I'm gonna tell. Okay. So like, here's a concrete example. Let's say you run a supermarket that uses the little. Do you have any uh, supermarket cards with a little barcode on it that you scan when you go into the supermarket? Yeah, because they tell you to because you're going to get some discounts. You get gas discounts or whatever, right? Okay, mm -hmm. uh, so you're, you're you know, when you filled out that application, you filled out your name, your birth date, your address, and like a whole bunch of information. And um, let's say that you want to find everybody who purchased Doritos in a specific uh, uh, zip code, right? And, and you want to send a coupon to them for some reason. Or... Let's say you're a dentist and you want to send a birthday card to everybody who still has their wisdom teeth. Then you can do that very easily with a relational database, right? Like you say, you send a query uh, of has wisdom teeth and birthday and, you know, and, and it'll give, it'll spit out an answer to make a, a connection between those two data points for you. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds very simple. I mean, that's like what we do with like, you know, uh, querying the internet constantly, right? Like it's a, it's a, uh, familiar facet of our everyday lives now. But in the 1970s, it was like, well, okay, we can store data on hard drives, but how do we retrieve that data in a way that helps us make connections between pieces of data and make sense of the world? Answer relational database. That's right. And if you've ever heard of SQL, you ever heard of, you know, if you've like have any sort of Familiarity with computer programming, you've probably run across the term SQL. It stands for Structured Query Language, uh, and that's kind of the universal language that was developed for writing and querying relational databases. Okay, so the examples that I gave you are how Oracle defines what a relational database is on their website. Uh, in a retail context, all the examples about what relational databases do are about like customer satisfaction and business efficiency and things like that. But you'll probably not be surprised to learn that relational databases did not develop out of a desire to please retail customers. Uh, in fact, Larry Ellison took the name Oracle from the CIA project, Project Oracle, <laughs> that he worked on just prior to founding the company Oracle. Hmm. Can you guess what a CIA project called Project Oracle was all about? Uh, you know, dealing with relational databases and matching pieces of data together? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure if you took a few seconds to think about it, you could. Um, it's about mass surveillance, right? So... Uh, at the founding of the mass surveillance state, one of the earliest initiatives to working on the, the technological infrastructure that was necessary to do uh, massive data collection and surveillance of Americans was Oracle. And they started out as a government contractor, still most of or, or a an outsized share of their business comes from government contracts. It's not possible really to tell what uh, the they are doing for the government because a lot of the contracts are classified, hmm. but a lot of their uh, income, a lot of their revenue comes from government contracts uh, more than than other competitor companies. And so, you know what what the the CIA saw very early on, right? The Central Intelligence Agency is that they needed a way 
to gather uh, and create relationships between pieces of data uh, to make their their job easier. So like take the examples of like that we talked about a second ago, like with a retail context, like, okay, well, let's say I'm uh, I want to I'm in the CIA and I, I want to cross reference people uh, who are or I'm in the FBI, maybe. And I want to I want to uh, cross reference people who are on the no fly list uh, with people who have recently purchased a large amount of uh, ammonium nitrate fertilizer. Sure. Yeah. All right. OK. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, this is important to know, right, uh, because Oracle is in your life. It's in all of our lives, all of the retail purchases that we make, uh, the things we buy on Amazon, PeopleSoft. If your workplace uses, if your workplace human resources uses PeopleSoft, the Oracle databases are. It's the second largest software company in the world after Microsoft. Your information is constantly being gathered by Oracle. They started as a CIA operation, and they continue to exist as a CIA operation. I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but like, uh, do you remember Oracle being in the news recently for anything? I didn't hear about it. So they they were the ones who got the TikTok contract. Um, oh, remember okay. when Trump threatened to ban TikTok unless they, uh, yeah, 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 yeah had yeah. a data storage solution based in the United States. Oracle got the contract. Uh, so uh, the reason that they got it. And, and even like, you know, CNBC business analysts will point this out. It's not because they had a superior product. It's because they are big Trump boosters and uh, friends with him. Uh, and also, you know, maybe because uh, the, of their ties to the surveillance, uh, government surveillance industries. So TikTok is the CIA, just just in case anybody. And it's also uh, the Chinese surveillance state. So like you have a, if you're using TikTok, you're getting like a two for one. Oh. It just like like never ends being alive in this world, in this technological milieu, the more you sort of look at it and you look behind the curtain and you see the invisible infrastructure that's determining our reality, the more it just makes you want to jump off a very high cliff. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's messed up. And I mean, in the, in the case of Larry Ellison and Oracle, it's not just insinuation, right? It's not like, oh, they had a relationship with the CIA. We're not sure what it is now. Uh, Larry Ellison is a huge proponent of mass surveillance. Um, After 9-11, a few months after 9-11, he wrote a New York Times op-ed called A Single National Security Database where he laid out the argument that for an all-encompassing surveillance ecology that tracked every person in the United States using biometric data, including thumbprints and iris scans and identification cards. Uh, like In other words, he used the anxiety and fear that people were feeling after 9-11 to promote his business model, right? Like to promote Oracle. Well, it's like we're not that far off from that at this point. No, no, we're not. And he loves it. He said in a 2004 interview, he said, Quote, the information about your banks, your checking balance, your savings balance is stored in an Oracle database. Your airline reservation is stored in an Oracle database. What books you bought on Amazon is stored in an Oracle database. Your profile on Yahoo is stored in an Oracle database. Privacy is already gone. Uh, (laughs) And remember when he says Oracle database, right? Knowing what we know about Larry Ellison and, and his love of mass surveillance and security, it's also the CIA, right? Like 
one imagines that there are relationships that we are not privy to between these entities. It's kind of amazing to think about like how hard it is to move in this world at this point in a traceless way. Like to just do anything that couldn't be observed somehow. If they wanted to, they wanted to throw enough money at it and figure out how to zoom in, find the recording. Like you could barely walk outside. Yeah. You could barely do anything. That, I mean, you're describing it as a nightmare, but that is Larry Ellison's fantasy. Uh, He thinks that's good and makes things better. I just, I just can't believe that it's all happened within the time that like we became adults. Like like we grew up in a world where there was just like almost zero recording of anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, it's true, right? Like the relational database wasn't invented till the 1970s. It didn't become a real commercial product until the eighties. And it really was nothing until the two thousands, right. In terms of the, the sort of surveillance uh, capabilities that we think of today. It's pretty wild. It is pretty wild. And I mean, they take it further. Uh, In 2013, Oracle introduced a new product called Social Enabled Policing, uh, which is just a nightmarish term. Uh, Here's here's how they describe it in uh, in the brochure that they made. Quote, Oracle offers complete solutions that can assist law enforcement agencies to leverage the power of social media to achieve better outcomes for the community. Our goal is to help you harness this wealth of new information, not only to prevent and solve crime, but to achieve the objectives set forth by Sir Robert Peel of getting closer to the community. We live in a new world, but the principles remain the same. The police are the public and the public are the police. (laughs) All right, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just hear that kind of like that's like East Germany. Language. The police are the public, right. and the public are like yes, everyone is watching you all of the time, uh, and you're watching everybody else. And actually, that's good, and that that is a thing that we want, and it makes us safe and feel great. <laughs> um, that was an, that was from an advertising brochure that was like sent to police departments, um, and I will link to that in the show notes too. Uh, So anyway, I'm wrapping up this part on the history of Oracle, and I want to get into to Safra Katz, who, um, you know, uh, Ellison is a little bit more reserved in his support of Donald Trump than 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 Safra Katz is. Uh, If uh, it was a big story back in 2016 that that he uh, Ellison let Trump hold a fundraiser at his house, but he didn't show up like, like, you know, like I'll let you have a fundraiser at my house, but I'm not going to come because of the optics of it or something. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, but Safra Katz does not give a fuck about optics. Um, she regularly praises Trump and has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to both of his, uh, election efforts. And, uh, there is, uh, I came across a YouTube video of her that was very interesting of her delivering the keynote at the U S ambassador to Israel's house in Israel on the occasion of moving the U S embassy to Jerusalem. So if we remember that, uh, this was widely seen and widely understood to be a, an anti-Palestinian, uh, uh, effort by the Trump administration to, you know, please, um, uh, the Israeli government and Israeli Zionists. And the, the, like, why, why would, why not a politician or why not like, why is the CEO of Oracle giving this keynote at 
the is U.S. Israeli ambassador's house when that happened. Yeah, what's up with that? Uh, well, I mean, it turns out she's a huge, you know, uh, she's one of these huge, uh, a Zionist, right? An Israel booster. Uh, she's friends with sure. Sh- Sheldon Adelson and his wife. Right. Um, he was probably the most famous, uh, one of these American, rich American, you know, sort of uh, people. And there is a, a Oracle has a major facility in Israel called Oracle Israel uh, that no doubt <laughs> Strangely serves enough. the same, if not more invasive uh, surveillance functions that that Oracle underwrites in the United States. Uh, so Katz, Katz is Israel or she was born in Israel. She immigrated to the United States when she was five, I think, or some when she was a child. Um, she went to Wharton uh, Business School, went into banking. And her her biography itself is not particularly interesting. But the weird thing is, people think that her biography is interesting, and that's like that's the main thing I want to talk about. Because if you look at 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 anything she sort of says or does, like it's very clear that she is a uh, kind of right wing psychopath, a militaristic authoritarian person who. Uh, who works every day to undermine the last shreds of privacy that we have in the United States. Um, However, she is constantly upheld as like the ultimate girl boss. Uh, She is one of these people who keeps getting like speaking engagements for being a powerful woman in business. Like she, I think maybe, you know, I mean, not even less lately because, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I found were very recent, but she served on the Trump transition team. She was even considered for director of national intelligence. Uh, and, and I think that that should tell you a lot about what Oracle does and what her job is. But when you search for her on Google and YouTube, like the, you don't come up with a lot of stuff about her ideological commitments. It's more like awards and accolades that she receives for being a powerful woman in tech. Well, that's not particularly surprising given what we've learned doing the show up until now. Well, it's not that surprising. It's like, so like this is, this is an example of what I'm talking about. She gave the keynote address at the She Believes Summit, which was a joint conference sponsored by U.S. Women's Soccer, Volkswagen, and Nike. Right now, Nike has come to see itself. It, it has positioned itself against Trump in its advertising and against the sort of Republican authoritarian ethos. Um, uh, uh, Volkswagen has always, you know, uh, well, not always, but you know, <laughs> at least in the past, you know, couple of decades, adver- <laughs> <Definitely> ad- <laughs> advertised itself to kind of like liberal uh, middle class people. Uh, U.S. women's soccer is like widely seen as uh, as a kind of identity politics uh, hotbed, right? Like the, a lot mm-hmm. of the people who, a lot of the U.S. women's soccer athletes have been very outspoken in their opinions. And like, why the hell are you having Safra Katz this, uh, be the keynote speaker at the She Believes Summit? Nobody there has any sort of uh, like ideological commitments that are anything, or at least they'd say they don't, or anything like Safra Katz, right? Like she... Uh, but like, it's just that she is a woman who makes a lot of money. And that's like where this this like very awful, you know, sort of Sheryl Sandberg lean in uh, uh, system or the hashtag girl boss, you know, uh, stuff like as, as I don't really know about this stuff. It's this way of thinking about feminism that hollows it out of all of its philosophical or political content, right? Like it's a way of thinking about feminism. Like what does it mean to be a feminist? It means 
uh, that you make a lot of money and you become successful. And then you're, you somehow through that process emerge as a symbol for other women of success. Uh, like I, that's the thing that always like puzzles me. Like, what are you a symbol of exactly that? Everything's okay. So is your success an implicit argument to other women that there aren't structural barriers to their success, right? That like actually things are okay. Um, yeah. But regardless, huh. like, like, you know, Sheryl Sandberg was kind of like, she was criticized by like Michelle Obama. Like, you know, like it, there is a, there's a, a mainstream centrist rebuke of, of Sandberg's lean in feminism, uh, which focuses only on like self-empowerment, self-betterment, self-care. It's all focused on the self. Well, I mean, it's a, it sounds like a, a classic pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Except- it's, it's feminism filtered through neoliberal ideology, right? It's like, there are, you know, are the thing that we come back to on the show often, right? Like there is no society. There are only individuals, the famous Margaret Thatcher quote, right? Like that, that's what it is, right? Like there is no solidarity between women based on shared experience. There is no such thing as feminism as a, as a, a collective movement of people who find solidarity in one another, uh, in community. No, no, no. There's just individual women succeeding. And when they make a lot of money, that's proof that feminism is working. Right. Like, and, and, you know, the, the hashtag girl boss uh, stuff is very much the same. It's just kind of rebranded for millennials. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, lean in, but like with attitude, you know, like more leather or something. Uh, but that, that's sort edgier. of, yeah, edgy. It's an edgy lean in. Yeah. Uh, uh and that's sort of on the outs too. I mean, there's a a fantastic article by um uh Lee Stein uh called The End of the Girl Boss is here. And uh she's fantastic. Um and and she introduced me to this phrase. I think she she coined uh called for-profit feminism, right? Like which is oh, okay. That that you know, that sort of like crystallized things for me. Yeah, that makes sense. The like the idea is like I think you can take the phrase in a couple of ways, and we'll link to her article uh, in the show notes too. Like one for profit feminism is like aggressively non intersectional, right? Like feminism is just about being a successful woman, right? Like there is there is no uh, uh, even lip service paid to issues of uh, race or uh, ability. Or, or, or uh, you know, gender nonconforming people, or anything else, right? Like it's just uh, uh, feminism is about you know success. And the question, you know, the question that they ask, right? Like, is that the the for profit feminists ask is like, am I making money, right? Like, and if you're making money, then you're breaking barriers and breaking glass ceilings, right? And doing doing the things that uh, prove that like essentially prove that feminism isn't necessary, right? Like that a feminist politics isn't necessary because look, I succeeded. And the other thing that, that for-profit feminism means is that like feminism often gets, it gets turned into a kind of branding, gets turned into a marketing that like, it becomes so hollow and so shallow that it's just like, like feminism just means buying the right lipstick or furniture or clothes, you know, like think, oh, this uh, company has a, a woman CEO and I'm buying from it. So I'm doing a feminism, right? Like, 
And I, I thought I'd read a, a passage from Stein's uh, article because I, I the, the you know I liked how she she noticed that like the girl boss has recently started to pay attention to race because of the cultural moment that we live in like even though it kind of historically has ignored it but the, the like the way it treats race follows this familiar pattern of profiting off of uh, social inequities uh, she says. Uh, She's talking about that book, White Fragility, if you've heard about it. Uh, quote, Oh, yeah, of course. Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility is number one on the New York Times bestseller list and is poised to become the lean-in of the 2020s. Uh, a book by a white woman, white woman for white women that says, see this big systemic problem? Start by working on yourself. White Fragility is social justice through the lens of self-improvement. Like that's... That, again, like really crystallizes things for me. Social justice through the lens of self-improvement. Uh, as is always the case with self-improvement programs marketed to white women, uh, there's money to be made here. D'Angelo is available to speak to your organization for $30,000 to $40,000. If you want an anti-racist education in the comfort of your own home, uh, Sarah Rao and Regina Jackson will come to your dinner party for $2,500. So, uh, end quote. And the last thing I'll say about Safra Katz uh, is that uh, if you like that sort of thing, you can also book her as a speaker. Uh, her speaking fee is one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the venue. Uh, and again, we will leave a link in the show notes for you in case you want to contact her agent. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's just frustrating about all of those ideas is they just deny the possibility of structural critique, or just completely ignorant of it at yeah. any level. It's all up to and you, like baby. You're, you know, completely missing the point. It's it is missing the point of politics in general, of a social movement in general. Like it is, if anything, it's anti-political. It's anti-social movement because it like it it denies that uh, uh, people can find solidarity on the basis of a shared experience, right? It's just like oh, you're yeah. just this like autonomous atomic individual bouncing around the earth, and if you want to be a feminist, what that means is that you empower yourself by working 90 hours a week or something like that. I don't even know, right? Like just by leaning in, right? Or being a girl boss. These arguments just get so tedious, you know? It's just another version of the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like... The neoliberal, I mean, the neoliberal ideology is a constant drumbeat in our culture and it, it just banging us in the head all of the time. Ugh. So I guess we got to rate this person, Safra. Safra, Safra Katz. Katz. I do like that name. Safra is a, is a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice name. I haven't heard it before. It's a good name. Um, bad person though. Uh, I think. I mean the the fact. I mean she's been at Oracle for a long time, and she's been like Oracle seems to me like Facebook approaching Facebook level harm. Oh, I mean, it's a little, I forgot to even bring up, this is a Larry Ellison fact. He owns 98% of the sixth largest Hawaiian Island. So he is also, a so he's, like, he's, he's just, also colonizing Hawaii. Yeah. I mean, I just think in terms of like the infrastructural changes that yeah. have been a direct result of this company and this technology and the amount of negative consequences that they have on the world. I mean, we're talking like massive impact, right? And even yeah. if it's not like obviously dead bodies, it's like a lot of stuff that I think is pretty dark. Yeah. I would I would say I would say at least an eight. I think that when we get to Ellison, he's like I think it's just like a foregone conclusion that Ellison's a 10, right? Uh I'm yeah. gonna I, I would give cats for just being 
a, an eager and enthusiastic henchwoman uh, for decades. I, I'd give her a nine. Okay. Not great. Yeah. Not a great person. Uh, Joe, you're up next. Who are we doing? Well, we're we're going to do a family today. Oh, it's in some in some ways, the family I'll be covering is a little different from most of the billionaires that we deal with on the show. Because as you know, and our listeners know, our show typically covers American billionaires, but the family we'll be talking about today is actually a Colombian family. So oh. they have a somewhat different vibe. I wonder why they came up on our. Um list of American billionaires. Well, the guy that we selected, Alejandro, who I'll talk a little bit about, is in fact an, an American. He was born ah. in America. And so were his siblings. But the fortune comes from Colombia, and they're very ah. much sort of a, a historically important Colombian family. All right. Again, the guy that we picked on the wheel was Alejandro Santo Domingo. And he is the son of Julio Mario Santo Domingo who was one of the largest looming Colombian businessmen of the past century. He died in 2011 and left behind a massive fortune and a sprawling family business. In a minute, I'll say one or two things about Alejandro and his siblings. But first, a little background on the family fortune. The family made its fortune in beer, and they are some of the richest beer people on the face of the planet still. Really? Because they now have a stake in AB InBev. And that'll be what I what I get to later after we do the bio. Yeah. The the seeds of the Santo Domingo Empire were planted back in the Great Depression when Mario Santo Domingo, who's the grandfather of the current generation of Santo Domingos, started buying up struggling breweries in his hometown of Barranquilla. And he continued buying these breweries and consolidating his company until the late 1960s when his firm merged with Bavaria, mm -hmm. which maybe you've heard of or maybe not, but it, it was the largest beer company in Colombia. And so he then became part owner of the big guy in his country. Mm. So Mario's son, Julio Mario, Inherited the business in the in the early seventies, and let me just say, right now, I'm going to get a, a, ahead of the fact that the the names are going to get annoying and hard to follow here because, okay, Julio Mario Senior is the son of Mario, and he wound up naming two of his four sons Julio Mario. <laughs> uh, but anyway, under Julio Mario Senior's leadership, the family continued to flourish in the beer business, and they also expanded their holdings into a massive empire that uh, came to span a multitude of industries, including uh, media and transportation, petrochemicals, metals, food processing, just whatever they could get their hands on. Yeah. And uh, the Santo Domingos grew to be one of the richest families in Colombia and were massively powerful and still are today. So, Julio Mario Sr. 
who again died in 2011, was for many decades like a big-time mover and shaker in high society. He at one point served as Colombia's ambassador to China. He was, he, I feel like I just said China, like Trump says China. 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 <laughs> yeah. uh, he was famously friends with the novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which, have you ever read A Hundred Years of Solitude? I have not, no. I started it. <laughs> <laughs> he married three times. Two of his wives were Brazilian socialites. And then he went on to marry a Colombian socialite, which just makes me want to interrupt myself because I don't know, this this might be a pointless and uninteresting thought. But when you read through the bios of the Santo Domingo family members, it's almost like everyone in this family, every person in this family is just either called a socialite or is married to a social socialite. Hmm. And like the concept of a socialite seems so strange and antiquated to me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, usually also like it should be socialist, right? Like like so it's somebody who is dedicated to the cause of uh, being social, right? Like but the, <laughs> yeah. the but the name socialist was already taken. So like, a they, different had to, kind of they, <laughs> they had to go with socialite. Yes, um, it's a weird word, but it's also I mean, I know there's like lists of socialites and like, you know, whatever famous people like Kardashians, they're socialites. But it's like I hear the word socialite and I just feel like we're Talking about characters in a Victorian novel or something. Yeah, it derealizes the person in some way because, like, I don't know any socialites. Like, a, you know, it's sort of like celebrity. You know, it's like a, it's like celebrity without the press covering you as much, right? Like, uh, well, here's my question: Does anyone self-identify as a socialite? Are you like, I'm a socialite? Or is I it bet a like term that you're just Epstein called by other people? Ghislaine Maxwell did. I bet they called themselves socialites because like they kind of aspired to be that right um i see all right a few random details about the children it seems like alejandro is the current patriarch of the family he runs point on the family business he's married to lady charlotte ann wellesley (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is a socialite name that's what i that's what i mean like (laughs) when i say that this is a colombian family it's a little different like not very many american billionaires are like in this world, you know, global, they're cosmopolitan socialites. It's like the next level. But like <laughs> Lady Charlotte Ann Wellesley is the <laughs> daughter of the ninth Duke of Wellington and <laughs> Princess Antonia of Prussia. So, yeah, an okay. example of you can't be a princess of a place that does not exist anymore. Right? Like, <laughs> I guess they still have a, some sort of royal line that they're hanging on to. I guess so. Uh, Alejandro is Harvard educated, like a Park Avenue type financier. He has like, I don't know if you see a picture of him, he's got one of those square jawed prep faces. <laughs> he actually he's looks jealous. No, I mean, well, no, I don't, I don't want to look like that, but he, he looks like a cross between Antonio Banderas and John Hamm. Go look him up. Go look him up right now. You'll see what I'm saying. It's like both of them. Um, so I don't really have very much to go on with him, but he seems like a clean cut member of high society. He sits on the board of the Nature Conservancy and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there's really nothing interesting or scandalous that I could find out about him as far as I could tell. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the business later, which he uh, administers. Alejandro's brother, 
Andres seems less clean cut than his brother, <laughs> but not that much different. I mean, he went to Brown. He wound up founding sort of like, I don't know, as the rebellious brother, maybe. He wound up founding a like a record label, Kamado Records, which I guess is a indie music and metal label. That sounds okay. I don't think it was a particularly or is a particularly successful label, but he has the resources to keep it going. The most interesting thing I found out about Andres was that he, back in 2011, which I guess is the, t- the year his dad died. I don't know if this was before or after his dad died, but he pled guilty to hit and run in, in Manhattan. He ran over some dude's foot with his Mercedes and then left the scene. <laughs> so uh, he pled yeah. guilty. That sounds like a, that sounds like a slip and fall shit. You know, like that's, <laughs> I was about to say, Oh, Mercedes <laughs> is coming by. You stick your foot out. Oh, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> I mean, that, the guy whose foot he destroyed is now extremely rich. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the older of the two Julio Mario sons have the same ni- name died of cancer back in, 2009. Uh, and the younger Julio Mario is a DJ, part of the NYC DJ crew, Sheik and Beak. You know Sheik and Beak, right? You're a big time Sheik and Beak fan. I don't. I don't. <laughs> and finally, the sister Tatiana is married to a Monegasque royalty, a member of the Monegasque royal family. Her husband is currently fourth in line to the throne. So, damn. These people another like, socialite. Yeah. Royalty around every corner in this family. The fact that <laughs> that the, that royalty still exists is uh, extremely funny. Yeah. <laughs> so over the last two decades, the Santo Domingo family has experienced a dramatic increase in their overall wealth, and, the, and a major reason for this is because the family was successful in growing their business outside of Colombia diversifying their portfolio on an international scale, becoming big transnational business players. But the major move in this direction that has led to their their newest influx of riches dates back to 2005 when they sold Bavaria, which again was at the time Colombia's largest brewery, to S.A.B. Miller in exchange for stock. Hmm making them the second largest shareholder of the company at the time. And so, as some listeners may already know, a little over a decade after that, a couple of years ago now, SAB Miller merged with Anheuser-Busch InBev. And as part of these negotiations, the family came away with a 5% stake in AB InBev. So, again, the family's business holdings are vast and exceedingly complicated. And it would be interesting to talk more about the details of it. But because we have a limited amount of time and because the main through line of the the narrative of the family fortune is this these holdings in in the beer industry dating back to their grand granddaddy Mario we're going to talk some about beer and the beer industry all right and the fortune obviously results not just from making beer and selling beer but from the consistent consolidation of the beer industry over time. They started playing this game midway through the 20th century and are still playing it today. Uh, and so, okay, the consolidation of the beer industry, how interesting a topic is this really? I mean... I, I find it very interesting. A, I don't know anything about it. 
Um, well, and- that's interesting because I feel like people do know about it somehow. Like certainly listeners of our show in a general way know it's happening, right? You kind of, you know what AB InBev is. Yeah. Roughly. Like I know in a very vague way, uh, but I don't know. I don't know what it means. It's pretty much common knowledge that AB InBev and Molson Coors are these enormous beastly companies that have been gobbling up competition all over the world for years. And so I, I do hesitate to talk too much about this because it's a big and obvious thing that's happening and there are better places probably to, to learn about this information than our show. But since we've been dealt the hand of the Santo Domingo family, I'll take a minute to, to discuss the infrastructure of the beer industry as it exists today in the United States and how industry consolidation is shaping the economy in in certain specific ways. I think these are issues that are pertinent to the themes of the show and will perhaps be of interest to our listeners. Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm extremely interested in this. All right, cool. So uh, if you happen to be a beer drinker today, who's even vaguely tuned into like the basic developments of the beer industry, then you're probably aware of a sort of general weird contradiction that seemingly exists between, on the one hand, an ever-consolidating beer industry where two enormous companies, AB InBev and and Molson Coors, are clearly dominating the market everywhere. And on the other hand, this sort of explosion of independent craft beer that we've all witnessed blossom over the past couple of decades. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that, but that's... I think that's a good way to describe it. So right now, AB InBev and Molson Coors together control about 65% of the beer market in the United States. And this is actually down from 80% uh, in the the mid-aughts, but they're still completely dominant and still gobbling up competition all over the place. Meanwhile... This is in some ways an even more interesting statistic. The number of beer companies in the United States has grown from approximately 100 in 1987 to approximately 8,000 today. Wow. So I'm, I'm getting these figures from a Slate article that we'll link to in the show notes. And then what follows in the next couple of minutes really is a summary of some of the article's main points. But the one, one thing that I know that I would like to inter- interject here is that um, sure. one of the uh, only good things that Jimmy Carter did when he was president was to make it legal to homebrew it, it, until... Oh, really? The, until the late 1970s, it was actually just like moon. It was illegal like moonshine to brew your own beer. That's a pretty stupid law because there's a good reason to make moonshine illegal. Yes. Yeah, there's no good reason to make brewing your own beer illegal. It can't make you blind or anything like that. <laughs> you know? No, you're just likely to produce some shitty beer. But I think part, I, I guess I would say, I think part of it uh, of the microbrew revolution was due to people getting started in their in their basements and people... Uh, Having more access, you know, people creating stores to supply people, home brewers. No, it makes sense. People. Yeah. Jimmy Carter is responsible for the microbrewery revolution. So, okay. On the surface, it looks like this is maybe kind of cool. Big business is flourishing. Little guys are also coming up and now people have access to a lot of good beers they didn't used to have access to. Like, what's the problem? Uh-oh. Was there a catch? No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you pause for one second and sort of think about what's going on, you might find yourself asking, okay, so there's been skyrocketing craft brew production. Why aren't these eight 
thousand craft breweries, which today oh, collectively contribute to about 12% of the industry. Yeah. yeah. Why aren't they getting a bigger piece of the pie? Yes. So why? Uh, it is true that a lot of these beers made in craft breweries are terrible beers and that no one should ever drink. <laughs> there is that. Of course, a lot of these craft beers are insanely good and better than anything that AB InBev or Molson Coors has to offer. But in any, in any event, you'd, you'd think, given this, this increase in production, they might be doing better. The answer to why they're not has to do with the infrastructure of the beer industry, which has determined the nature of this economy for the past 50 years or so. Hmm. Basically, for a long time, it worked like this. Most state laws required that the industry be broken up into three more or less distinct categories, production, distribution, and sales. Ah. And so these laws, as, as I understand it, are an attempt to block vertical in- integration I, and complete that monopolistic control. That crossed my mind earlier. I was going to ask you, this seems like a very... Uh, this seems like an industry that's very ripe for vertical integration. Like, why not grow your own grain? Yeah. Oh, so they're not allowed. Well, we'll talk more about this in a second. But historically, there have been laws in place to prevent this kind of integration from happening. Huh. As I And I don't know a lot about it, but my understanding is a lot of this stuff is at the state level, which is like why, you know, like you lived in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania alcohol laws are... Yeah. I mean, for those of you who out there who do not live in Pennsylvania, we have state stores, and a couple other states have this too. You have state stores where you buy liquor. You have beer distributors where you buy beer, but you also have six-pack shops where you buy beer in uh, with if you want to buy it not during normal business hours and buy it in reasonable amounts like a six-pack or a 12-pack. And then you can buy takeout from bars. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, you know, which it's, is a, well, that, a bar is what I call a six-pack shop. In fact, like a lot of people in Pennsylvania just refer to neighborhood bars as the six-pack shop because that's <laughs> what, the only reason they go there. Living in Pennsylvania is completely annoying because the distributors, you have <laughs> to buy, sucks. you have to buy 24-packs to get yeah. any beer out of the I distributors. Think so. I right? think the minimum is the case, yeah. Anyway. So enough about Pennsylvania. The, the the point is, you know, their laws are very different from every other kind of state laws and it's it's regulated at the state level. The reality today is that the big distributors in the United States typically work with either AB InBev or Molson Coors. And depending on which company the distributor is aligned with, they'll be working actively to push those respective brands. Any brewery, the small craft breweries need distributors to get their products to market wherever they are. And many of them have no choice but to go with a distributor that are first and foremost vehicles for either AB InBev or Molson Coors because ah. that's, that's all that's out there. Not 100% true. It is pretty close to 100% true in certain parts of the country. So it's like the big companies control the trains, you know, like they control the the transportation that gets it from point A to point B. Yeah. Yeah. In a couple of different ways. And, and those ways are changing as we speak. It's also just interesting to know that once a uh, a beer producer negotiates a deal with a distributor, whether it's one that's working with AB InBev or one working with Molson Coors or maybe an independent distributor that they were able to to work out a deal with, they are essentially locked into a permanent relationship 
with this distributor because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to break the contract, <laughs> depending on what the contract is. But it, or it can be even more than that. It can be in the, the millions. So at, at the same time, AB InBev has, in, in, in recent years, worked actively to limit the distribution of craft beer competitors. So I don't know if you've heard about this or if our listeners have have heard about this. I feel like it crossed my radar, but I learned more prepping for the show than I'd ever learned before. Up until 2016, they had been working these sort of quasi-secret incentive programs where they were rewarding distributors that were willing to exclusively stock Anheuser-Busch brands. So these incentives might be uh, like upgrading company equipment in in whatever way. It, it could also be at certain points literally was handing distributors cash if <laughs> they were w- moving upwards of 90% Anheuser-Busch product. Hmm. So uh, this caught the attention of the feds and they stopped doing this apparently. But since they stopped these incentive programs, they've somehow managed to start buying up distributors in states that will let them do this, sort of collapsing the structure of the beer industry as it's existed for decades. And I haven't done a deep dive on this, so it's, it's not clear to me how they're getting around the laws that have historically prevented this sort of vertical integration. But evidently, in certain states, they found a way because they now own some of these distributors. The upshot is, at this point, either because the major beer conglomerates actually straight up now own the beer distributors, or because the beer distributors are like, quote, affiliated with one of the big companies and and, and accordingly kind of guaranteed to protect the big company's interests. The little guys, one way or the other, need to go through the big guys in order to distribute their beer. And this can create bad situations for them. Oftentimes... AB InBev and Molson Coors just point blank box out the small beer producers. Right. I mean, they're obviously going to, if they're any sort of threat to them, then they're obviously going to do that. Like, oh, you're taking our market share for this kind of beer. Then, uh, nope, sorry. Right. No space on the trucks. That's that's the deal. You know, it's, it's sort of like very clearly limits their opportunities to sell beer, which I think is, you know, goes a long way to explaining why some of these really great beers aren't available right. in a wider areas and why they're not able to eat up more market share. They just don't control the infrastructure. So uh, here's another sort of amazing part of this. After the distribution stage, you have the retail stage. You move the move the beer around the country and then it goes to stores where products are shelved and where you have to actually go and buy your beer. So I had no idea this was happening, but apparently almost all the major retailers out there in the world. So this is like big liquor stores, box stores, chain supermarkets, you know, things like this. will use a representative from either InBev or Molson Coors to decide which products to stock in their stores. And these representatives are called, quote, category captains. <laughs> and as far, as far as I can tell, there's zero incentive for category captains to recommend 
any sort of smaller brands. Right. I right, mean, right. if they do, it's just like purely out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm sure there's no incentives for category captains to, uh, you know, not choose <laughs> beers that are uh, produced by Molson Coors and ABN. Right. I mean, it's a completely <laughs> bogus system. Yeah. So I was going to talk about one other thing today, but the segment's starting to run long. And I think I'm going to mostly punt on this idea. I'm, I'm sure we'll have occasion to talk about this idea at some point down the line. Just real quick, what I was thinking about yeah. talking about was this, this trend in the financial world of super rich families setting up what are called family offices. So rather than getting involved and investing their money in, with hedge funds or private equity firms or, or things like this, wealthy families, really wealthy families, are increasingly finding ways of controlling and investing their own assets inside their own office that they own entirely, which is not a good thing. And they're creating all sorts of problems, but I'm not going to talk about that in detail. This is just sort of a teaser. The next family that has a family office, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll use as an opportunity yeah, to explore yeah. this idea. Um, I'm mentioning it now just because there's the Santo Domingos have a family office. And I just want to <laughs> conclude with this sort of absurd detail of, about it. Just, I, I just bear with me. I spent it's been kind of a while working on this bit and uh, I, I just want to share it with our listeners. I, I, I hope it'll be worth it. So just to describe a little bit of the structure of their family business, the, the whole they all of these different businesses, the, the media business, the beer business, the petrochemicals, the, all of the crazy assets that they have are controlled by a, a holding company. That's often called the Santo Domingo Group or Grupo Santo Domingo. But the official name of this company is actually Valorem, previously known as Valores Bavaria. So, okay, for reasons I don't understand, the company, this holding company is technically public, but it looks like it's almost completely controlled by the Domingo family. Uh, sounds I like don't... the art museum of... Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> technically, it's a museum, um, but... In actual fact, <laughs> no one can go inside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's basically the same deal. So, okay, that's the holding company. But as I understand it, and even after spending like literally a few hours trying to get to the bottom of this specific issue, my understanding of, of all of these relationships is still a little shaky. But I, I think the assets of the Valorum portfolio are being managed by Quadrant Capital Advisors Incorporated, which, again, I think is the family office <laughs> for the Santo Domingos, based in New York City and managed by Alejandro. Okay. I realized that was sort of a lot and not immediately relevant to anything that came before it in this segment. But um, here's why I bring it up. Quadrant Capital Advisors, Inc., I learned from spending a while on the internet, is I'm pretty damn sure, completely distinct from and has nothing at all to do with Quadrant Capital, Quadrant Finance Partners, <laughs> Quadrant Mezzanine Partners, LLC, and Quadrant Investment Properties, which are all based in Dallas, Texas. Let's also not overlook the fact that Quadrant Capital Advisors, Inc. also seemingly has nothing at all to do with Quadrant Capital Group, LLC, <laughs> which is based out of Cincinnati, 
nor is it in any way related to Quadrant Capital Management LLC, which has been operating in Fairfield, New Jersey up until 2017 when it was bought out by Peacock Gladstone Financial, nor is Quadrant Capital Advisors in any way related to Quadrant Private Equity, a company based out of Sydney, Australia, which was formerly known simply as Quadrant Capital. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just like, why don't we simplify things and just name all financial companies Chad? <laughs> Chad? <laughs> Chad Cap. It's a, you know, Quadrant, it's a strong name. Seriously, what's so awesome about the name Quadrant? It's got that hard, it's got that, uh, the hard K at the beginning. It sounds sort of mathematical, like you're a math genius. Uh, and so like you, you're going to make people money because you have math smarts. I think that's it, right? Like, but a part of me just wonders, is this the sort of naming strategy that just blends into the background where people can't even really find out about you? You know, like I'm trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. I can't tell because there's 15 other quadrant caps. Yeah. Uh, No, I, I, that's, that's probably it. So we have to rate this family and, uh, I don't know. I've got some complicated feelings about them. They're definitely not as, I don't, I don't think they're as bad as your, your Oracle people. No, I mean, they don't seem exceedingly evil. Um, you know, here's, here's one thing that I didn't mention that's maybe worth mentioning. Uh, you, you may already know that, uh, Anheuser-Busch is responsible for bringing the beer shock top into the world. They own a 5% stake in a company that made Shock Top. That to me is almost worth a 10. I've never, I don't even know. What is Shock Top? Oh, it's such a fucking mediocre beer. It's Uh, anyway, I just have a vendetta against Shock Top. I mean, it's like if you ever go to like a amphitheater or like a sports arena, it's like the beer that will posture as the the microbrew, but it's oh, just a okay. just a shitty kind of awful tangy wheat wheat beer. Well, yeah, it sucks. That sounds bad. I, you know, I I think given given what you've said, uh, I think maybe like a four. Uh, were you a lot higher or a lot? No, I mean, I just feel like there's a lot we don't know, but well, that's the case with all of these guys. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could, there's a lot of things that we could have probably explored. Like the beer industry is horrible in a lot of ways, just like the tobacco company. They're marketing to teenagers like crazy and trying to make people alcoholics. And like, that's not good. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like as bad as a lot of the other things that we have to confront in this, in this podcast for Four? Yeah, let's go four. I can't come up with a really good reason to go more than four, so let's do four. Okay. That sounds good. So you're going to roll this roulette wheel and we're going to figure out what is happening yeah. for next episode? So here's a promise to you guys, listeners. Uh, we're going to get this next episode out within this month before the new year, before the new year. All right. You will have one more episode of zero. We've been really, really sort of lagging. Uh, it's mainly Chad's fault. What? I'll take some responsibility. Well, you're just, you just don't work that hard. That's true. Uh, let's roll that wheel.
268. Very boring name. Scott Cook. That is boring. Yeah. One of the most boring names I've ever heard. Uh, Scott Cook uh, is an old white guy with gray hair. Very normal for what we do. Oh, interesting. Financial software, Intuit, known for products like QuickBook, TurboTax, and Mint. I'm very interested to find out about the history of TurboTax. I might let that be yours. Okay, let's see who the next person is. You're not that into it. Not really. Let me, <laughs> let me respin that wheel. Uh-oh, we got a high one. We got one. I mean, it's not that high, but it's fairly high. 136. I don't know that that justifies your exclamatory tone. Well, I mean, getting one above 200, I feel like, is uh, kind of exciting because they usually have a lot more information <laughs> about them. Uh, it is number 136, Daniel Ziff. And I got to say... I'm doing Ziff. This is one of the... One of the worst looking people I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm looking at his picture on Forbes right now, and the hair is just. Did you get that text I just sent you? Uh, hold on, let me see. Oh God! Oh man, he has a brother named Dirk. Dirk Ziff. So, uh, man, they must have had a hard publishing. Life. Oh, they're nerds. They publish PC Magazine and Car and Driver. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, this sounds that sounds pretty uh, pretty weird, pretty interesting. I'll do the ziffs. You're gonna do? I can't do. I think them. you're gonna end up with a family again. You got Dirk, Daniel, and Robert. Uh, maybe they have a family office. Maybe they. Maybe <laughs> they do. The yeah, maybe they do. I'll take Scott <laughs> Cook. I want to talk about TurboTax. Should be a good episode. Is this this will be dropping? I don't know around Christmas before New Year's, something like that. And uh, we're grateful for you to that you've decided to listen to the show. Yeah, thank you, everybody, all the way to the bitter end. Make sure to like, subscribe, and all the things that uh, you do. And otherwise, just keep on staying healthy out there in this crazy world. Uh, we know it's a weird and difficult time. <laughs>